Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Grant Strem, Chairman and CEO of Proton Technologies. He and his team have been developing and deploying a process to sequester CO2, carbon dioxide, while producing vast amounts of hydrogen at a low cost. Now, why this is interesting is because hydrogen is potentially another fuel source. The end result is potential production of carbon negative fuels, referred to as clear fuels. Grant took the helm of Proton in 2017, and he's been navigating the oil and gas industry, which is traditionally very opposed to change. How he's navigating this is worth listening. Add to it that Grant's depth of knowledge around geology and chemistry, and you get a really interesting interview. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. Grant, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Corey. I'm really looking forward to this conversation as you and I spoke a bit in our pre-call here about how I came across Proton through a gentleman named Rob Tennant at Capital Power, a friend of mine. And he said that you've got something here which is quite fascinating. And, And in the world of power generation, oil and gas, and green technologies and alternatives, it sounds like there's something really cool here. But what I want to do first is, can you give us a background on yourself? And then we get into what Proton is and, and in fact, your whole career and how you came to it. But want a little background and we'll go from there. Sure. Yeah. To start with, I'm a Calgary-born geologist. I worked in upstream oil and gas for the first 10 or 12 years of my career. I actually started out working towards a philosophy degree and then worked in a bush camp in northern Alberta with 90 guys. And four of them had philosophy degrees, which made me reconsider my education plans. I had always liked geology and so did that as sort of a part-time basis while I was working and ended up doing an engineering master's in reservoir characterization, mostly because they had a scholarship they were offering and it was an evenings and weekends thing. And my plan was to invest all of my scholarship money into the stock market and learn how to enjoy the joys and the lows of investing on public companies. And my choice was into basically small mining companies. So I would go to PDAC in Toronto, Cambridge House in Vancouver, meet 500 companies and try and narrow it down to like two that would pay for my flights and hotels. And that actually worked out. But it was a real eye opener how the potential of something can turn into value. 
and watching different stages of companies and different phases, I had always had an interest in trying to run my own energy company. So I knew some about reservoir characterization, production engineering, geology, exploration was my main focus. But I also tried to go to different events for CFA society or landman get togethers and learn about all the different angles that I could within oil and gas. I, I tried to never have a breakfast slot or a lunch slot that was empty. So invite somebody and get a new perspective from another angle or company. So when I started geology or I came out of geology, I was trying to get a summer job as a hydrogeologist, which was my favorite subject. And I, I was unsuccessful and I was delivering FedEx packages and I had the opportunity to do a seven-week internship at Paramount Resources, and that basically brought me in. Before that, I didn't have a high opinion of the oil and gas sector, and I thought, well, if I get a job in oil and gas, I'll at least understand the constraints and the projects and the reasons and the rationale from within. I thought maybe there's some way in the course of time I can improve things from my perspective. So... I did manage to find that way. It took a long time, but to make hydrogen from oil fields, I think is a completely new way to envision an oil field. And I think a lot of that stems back to thinking about exploration geology. So I worked for Burlington Resources looking for, during the first shale gas boom, analogs to the American shale gas early successes from Mitchell Energy and others, and EOG, and some from Burlington, and tried to apply the same analysis and concepts to the Western Canadian Basin. And one thing that taught me was the immensity of the resource pyramid. So when you think about any resource, oil and gas is a good example. The biggest and the best, the easiest have mostly been discovered. And that's the apex of the pyramid where there's high porosity, oil that flows fairly easily. And it wasn't that hard to find. But those ones are pressure depleted. Huge infrastructure built up around them, refineries and fertilizer plants, power plants, offtake systems. But where you look at where all the large refineries are in the world and energy infrastructure, there's definitely some old big oil fields there. And that's why all the infrastructure is there. So no oil field is ever drained out fully. And the concept was, well, we can go instead of having to access these lower and lower quality reservoirs like horizontal drilling and fracking, for example, unlocked a big new segment of this wedge or this pyramid. Instead of having to do all that, you can actually go right back to those original ones and just oxidize the fuel in very well-characterized reservoirs where there's already an immense amount of infrastructure built up. So it's kind of repurposing the remaining hydrocarbons in that oil field towards a new purpose. And when people envision an oil field, they sometimes think about like a cavern underground. It's better to imagine a bucket of beach sand and all of that hydrocarbon is existing in the spaces between grains. And it might be, you know, half a mile from a well that in a really good reservoir, you can actually drain through these spaces between grains through depressurization or other methods, quite a bit of the oil towards a production well bore where you can pump it to surface. But it's really impossible to get it all to go to a production well where you can't drain it dry. So going back in and injecting oxygen to react with this remaining oil represents an enormous, enormous known, well-characterized energy deposit. So those can be 
the amount of energy that can come out can be very well calculated. And yeah, the, the concept is to not only trigger hydrogen productive reactions in that way, but also to store it backfill with carbonate rock. So sequestering CO2 as solid carbonate as we go. Economically, it's transformative to you know the energy concept in a couple of main ways. It can be carbon negative. It can be lower cost than natural gas and you know what the systems that we're used to. And it can be much larger scale than the systems we're used to. I think it's pretty fascinating. You went from philosophy to transforming existing oil wells into potential hydrogen producing deposits. And so I do want to get into that entrepreneurial journey and how you got there and like, you know, stock picking. I think you were, uh, I actually laughed about it. Your LinkedIn says you were a VP of research and TD analyst. And you're like, you know, basic standard issue TD analyst or equities analyst. No flair, no nothing. You're just like, no, it wasn't for me, it seemed. I enjoyed the job, to be clear, but it, it was something that I stepped away from it to start an oil company. I had a great exploration concept that I wanted to chase. But yeah, I worked at, um, I guess, a little bit more of my early career, if you'd like. I went from Burlington, which was purchased by ConocoPhillips. That's the phase when I was doing that, that master's in the evenings and weekends. ConocoPhillips had a big layoff in 2009 and I ended up as a core logger for Total looking at oil sands. So I had a really close-up view of what is good rock and what is bad rock in heavy oil, bitumen, and oil sands. From there, I went to GLJ, which was a reserves evaluation firm. And I worked there mostly related to oil sands and heavy oil and had a very, very deep understanding based on what is defined as economically producible reserves and all the different categories of reserves. And that also helped me have insight into how does that translate into value? At that time, there was still reserves-based lending going on and things like that. But definitely companies would be considered valuable or not valuable based on their reserves report, which are, depending on the reserves report author, you know, should be a fairly high standard of this should be economically recoverable based on existing technology and plans and so forth. So that actually helped Proton, by the way, I'll, I'll get into that. But there was a challenge in the oil sands in the banking world at that time, where there might be one company with 10 billion barrels of resource and their, their value was maybe two or $300 million. And there's another company with a few hundred million barrels and their value is a couple billion dollars. So trying to get from a technical ground up basis to these valuations pre-production was like a very perplexing challenge to a big bank at the time. So they needed some pretty serious technical subsurface experience and predictive capacity that could believably turn into a report about what the value of a certain oil sands company might be and the stock price target and why. So that's why I went over there and it was great. I really have no complaints. The hours were a bit extreme. I think it's really interesting how you've layered on so many different career experiences and that's brought you now to what seems to be a very technical approach or understanding of geology and the chemistry of what's happening subsurface or underground. But at a high level, can you give me just the pitch of who Proton Energy is and the promise you have? I think it's going to be massively disruptive in a positive way for the world by collapsing the cost of energy while expanding the supply, which will help trigger the next renaissance for humanity. And that's all through effectively the production of hydrogen 
through chemistry underground? Yes. So if you can make extremely low cost, vast supply of carbon negative hydrogen, you know, it really opens whole new doors and vectors that are hard to envision today. If you think about our global society burning $10 trillion of our money, which is just the distillation of human effort, really, all we're doing is collecting hydrocarbons and burning them in furnaces, turbines, and engines. If we could instead be burning $2 trillion a year, that would free up $8 trillion a year of human effort towards other endeavors. If you could do it at a lower price point, but have far more energy to bring to bear to various challenges, then society-wide, you, you can start you know, imagining whole new solution sets economically for what is the potential what kind of a space program could you have for $5 trillion? What kind of a art and music research and history? And you know, people could pursue a lot more realms than they can today. It's kind of like 300 years ago, something like 96% of people were involved in the production and distribution of food. And now it's something like 3%. So when there's a big swing in energy cost and availability, then it just frees us up to do so much more with so much more. That's actually a really fascinating look at it and, and a high level of the promise. Now, take us deeper into what Proton is and the business model there. And I mean, hydrogen uh, in itself, I mean, I've heard a bit about it, but the details I don't know about and how you approach creating hydrogen or extracting hydrogen from the ground and your patented approach. What is that? At a fairly high level, what we're doing is taking oxygen from the air. So if you cool the air to minus 185 Celsius, the oxygen is a liquid and the nitrogen is still a gas. So you can take that liquid oxygen and just warm it up to pressurize it enough to get into an oil and gas deposit. So an oil and gas deposit is just a hydrocarbon deposit. Hydrocarbons are maybe the sugar in the bread of your sandwich that you slowly oxidize by breathing. And it's the diesel in your truck. It's the natural gas that's burning in a turbine to power things. So all that's happening when people are, it's, it's a campfire. You take some sort of hydrocarbon material, organic material, molecules with hydrogen and carbon, obviously. And then you add oxygen to them and that reaction releases a lot of energy. So that is basically what's been driving humanity since forever in some form or another. And this is just taking enormous known fuel deposits in geology. And these are vast beyond belief. Like if you look at, for example, the Kimmeridge clay in the UK North Sea, it's roughly 15% total organic carbon by weight, which means by volume, it's almost 50% fuel. And it's about three kilometers thick and it spans most of the North Sea or a lot of the North Sea. So you, there's the Bakken shale in Saskatchewan, North Dakota, there's the Eagle Ford in Texas, there's all these very organic rich shales all over the, the world. And people so far have only been looking at what is the mobile hydrocarbons that I can economically produce to surface and then take those to some faraway refinery, do different chemical transformations so that we can just oxidize them in an engine somewhere. It's wildly inefficient. You know, it's, it definitely helps the world expand in a new trajectory to be able to do that. But if you look at it from a systems basis, there's no need to move all those carbon molecules around that are adding mass, friction, and of course, controversy and cost when you can just sidestep it all and harvest 
massive, massive energy from a way bigger geological resource than you previously thought you had. And yeah, I guess push that towards, well, the form is hydrogen. At the end of the life of a project, it'll be a big hot rock volume that you can still turn geothermal steam turbines for decades afterwards. But the reactions that happen, the oxygen starts out with partial oxidation, giving carbon monoxide and steam. And those are the input ingredients for water gas shift, which gives you CO2 and hydrogen. And that's the reaction where we get 90 plus percent of our hydrogen globally today. The big issue now is the focus is on CO2. And anything that you're doing where you have to constantly buy a fuel supply or buy electricity to make your hydrogen, like in the case of electrolysis, there's a significant burden of input cost all the time. And then your reaction vessels and pressure vessels and everything is all happening, specially tuned and designed chambers and high temperature vessels at surface. Whereas Mother Nature built all these high pressure vessels under the geological seal and they're loaded with decades or centuries of fuel. So, you know, the cost structure is just wildly different by reapproaching how you view this resource pyramid. Like a huge amount of it can be unlocked, way bigger than even horizontal drilling of fracking. Now, in taking this approach, I understand you've actually got a deal set up with white cap energy. And I'd love to hear more about that if I can. But then in taking this approach, has there been pushback from oil and gas companies? I mean, these the, the oil and gas companies have trillions of dollars of infrastructure in the ground to extract crude and turn it into the various uses we have for it. Would they not push back just to defend the assets they have? I think the really big ones do. We were in discussions, for example, with one of the big ones. And one of my friends phoned me and said, hey, Grant, such and such company just tried to hire me to try and find ways around your patents. So they're definitely looking and there's some attention being paid to it. And I think there's a defensive mindset and it's very analogous to people wondering why didn't Ford and General Motors buy Tesla 15 years ago? <laughs> it seemed like a logical thing to a lot of people. You could even go further back. I think it was in the 80s where there was the first electric cars and they were viable, but they got quashed. Yeah, you could. And people would point at the Chevy Volt and say, well, electric cars don't work. There's Nobody wants to buy an electric car. And I think if the electric car is a Chevy Volt, I can sympathize. Like, I don't want to buy a Chevy Volt. <laughs> yeah. Even if it ran for free, like if it, if it had a million kilometer range between charging, I just don't like Chevy Volts. And a lot of people can get behind a fast car. So like a Tesla Model S or a Roadster or a Cybertruck or even the Ford Lightning now and things like that, you know, the mindset has shifted. So some oil companies have bought licenses like Whitecap Resources and Nafta Gas in Ukraine, and there's going to be some others that obtain licenses in the near term. But they're usually not the super, super huge companies who have their own process and their own market share and they'll, you know, their own inertia. So let's talk about the business model then. You have the patents, you have the designs, the technology there, and somebody like White Cap comes along and says, we want to license this. So that's, in general, the business model. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So if somebody wants to get building, like a, a generic, I won't use their example specifically, but if somebody comes along and says, we would like to do a project for this, we've got an asset that is 
approaching the point where we'll have to start abandoning it, but we'd rather repurpose it. We think that it has might have big potential. Usually what we do is have our team go through a very deep dive on their asset and do an evaluation of what we think reasonably likely expectation should be for its productivity and how it could play out through time in a scenario. And so if they like that, sometimes they go for a license and the license, it's something that they would have to start construction on within a certain period of time. Usually there's some sort of a prepayment towards future royalties. We've accepted cash, we've accepted shares, we've accepted warrants, some sort of value to show that they're seriously planning to do it. But it's like 120th or 130th of the overall cost and it counts towards their future royalties. So it's basically just saying, yes, we're serious to do this. The future royalties at this point in time for everybody are, are pretty low. We're trying to reward early adopters who want to just get out there and build one for themselves. It'll be a volume limited license in most cases and something that can maybe cancel out their scope three emissions and maybe some more. And yeah, with that in hand, if they're doing really well, we're highly likely to find some way to expand the license and continue, you know, growing together. But meanwhile, you know, they've got something great that cancels all their scope three, which is now covered, required to be reported in IFRS reporting. So that's kind of a big deal if you can yeah. delete all of your emissions as an oil or coal company or something. Highly useful. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and so to just link this together, you've got a oil and gas company and they're plugging holes, they're drilling holes in the ground and extracting oil. They get to a point where that reservoir is is no longer economic to pull oil and gas out or the, the crude out of economically. And they have to abandon it. They have to go through the whole environmental process. Or they could come to you, license your technology, put on one of your facilities, your plant, build that there, and start injecting oxygen, liquidized oxygen, into the ground to create the reaction, which the byproduct being hydrogen, or one of the byproducts that comes up. Yeah, that's a reasonable summary. All right. (laughs) We're doing okay then. So basically, what they've now done... Let's say the abandonment liability for a certain field is 80 million bucks. And they look at this and go, oh, man, you know, the regulators got a gun to our head. We really have to start plugging and abandoning these things, reclaiming them all. Or we can spend the same amount of money, repurpose a large number of those wells and get new oxygen compatible wellheads and injection tubing for some of them. If it's an H2S field, you probably don't have to do too much on the production side. But if it's a sweet field, you probably have to buy H2S compatible wellhead and production tubing. And then basically some flow lines and some heat exchangers and a cryogenic air separation unit. So you cool out using heat exchange with this cold oxygen. You basically liquefy out all the CO2 you produce that does make it to the surface. Most of it shouldn't. But what does come up with the hydrogen, you liquefy out all of the different gases into their separate components through heat exchange. So you can do that with everything. There's sulfur compounds, there's propane, butane, ethane, there's even methane is something that you can make LNG just through heat exchange and then load it in trucks and sell these various products. Food grade CO2 will have a certain size market, you know, with people talking about synthetic jet fuels and methanol and urea, you know, there are chemical uses for some amount of CO2. We don't think the market will be big enough to absorb all of the CO2. So the best is to turn it to carbonate in the rock, 
within the pore space, which releases additional hydrogen underground. But yeah, in a nutshell, I think you summarized it quite well. Hmm, very interesting. Now, what is the size and the economic market for hydrogen? I mean, I, you know, I, I learned a bit about helium in you know, a deal I was part of and the team there are just fascinating what they're doing there. And I don't think really enough people know how important helium is to our daily lives. We just think of air balloons or, you know, birthday balloons. Now, how about hydrogen? What is the size of this? And then when would it actually be something that we could use for producing energy? Well, our first offtake deal is selling baseload electricity to Sask Power. So if you can make hydrogen cheaper than natural gas, the easiest way to move it around is power lines. Just burn it in a turbine right where you make it and sell electricity. So that's profitable and there's no carbon emissions. So it's very, very attractive on a standalone basis, even without all these wildly generous government incentives in many regions. So the next easiest is to make ammonia. So on the back of your air separation unit, depending on the scale of facility you want to build, you'll definitely have nitrogen, but you might also have revenue streams from krypton, xenon, argon, you know, noble gases, maybe neon at some of them. But yeah, the main point is ammonia already has this massive infrastructure for transportation and offtake and use. So it's a super important fertilizer for food production globally. And this drops the cost of that too, which means that we can shrink our agricultural footprint per person. The most expensive input ingredient typically for microbial protein is also hydrogen. So wherever we build one of these, there's probably going to be an ecosystem that pops up. So somebody wants to do tire recycling, somebody wants to do some microbial protein, somebody wants to do a certain amount of whatever their chemical is that they like to have and they need hydrogen to make it. There's going to be a bunch of these things that all kind of work together in different spots around the globe. But the main game, of course, is hydrogen production. And right now the market is about $200 billion a year, give or take. It's actually higher than that now because the price of hydrogen went up with the natural gas price going up. So most of the world's hydrogen comes from steam methane reforming, methane being natural gas. So if the input cost goes up, then your hydrogen cost goes up. So maybe we're up to 300 billion a year because of that factor. I'm not sure. But the global energy market is roughly 10 trillion a year. So on a gigajoule basis, the potential that I see is 10 trillion plus in terms of taking over the entire energy market in the course of time. Obviously, there's an enormous amount of infrastructure and inertia you can't burn hydrogen right away in every device that you know is currently used. So it'll take decades to fully build out and transform the whole thing. But it can go, I think, faster than in some regions than people expect to see it happen. So yeah, the ultimate marketplace size is definitely double-digit trillions. Now, what is that kind of first move to market? Let's use the analogy of Tesla and Elon Musk and coming out with Tesla to... His first car being the Roadster. I think it was a Roadster. What was that first vehicle he had? And, you know, just a sexy little sports car that he could sell as a luxury item and it got the ball rolling. What is the path forward for you? You mentioned Sask Power. What was that low-hanging fruit that you've been able to grab to get the ball rolling? We've been wondering the same question for a while. We built a hydrogen barbecue and we thought, well, you know, we could do like movie stars and politicians can brag about making veggie burgers on their hydrogen barbecue. <laughs> Fine. 
maybe there's a price premium for that. And so looking at the Tesla model and thinking about, are there some modes that are easy to do where people will just change their consumer behavior at the high end luxury? Is it yachts? Is it sports cars? Is it Formula One? Is it speedboats? Is it helicopters? There's a whole bunch of questions about where to get into. And at the end of the day, what we decided to try and do, and I don't know if this is the right move or not, but we thought, well, let's just stick to being a base load wholesale hydrogen supplier and we can make electricity and the easy stuff, industrial stuff. And there's already so many companies that have hydrogen fuel cell bicycles and drones and all these different things happening that do we really want to compete in the barbecue market? Do we really want to compete in the car market? It was a hard one to justify. And obviously now you're distracted with a whole new sideline as opposed to the main event, which is just way bigger than all of these other final uses. Well, but even at the main main event and being a baseload provider of hydrogen, there's got to be low hanging fruit there to play even in that arena. Yeah, there is. So what's caught my attention lately are the power price spikes in Texas. There's been three like massive, massive grid challenges in Texas that are still structurally there and having baseload turbines, rotary mass, spinning 24-7, providing reliable, reliable electricity at certain points within Texas is going to be a highly rewarded value-added service, I think, on an 80 gigawatt power grid. And in addition to that, with this Inflation Reduction Act offering an extra $3 per kilogram tax credit as icing on the cake. Well, if we're looking at a thousand ton per day facility, that ends up being about one gigawatt if you burn it in a combined cycle turbine. So if you're looking at an 80 gigawatt grid and you want to add 10 gigawatts, I think the grid could handle it. There's still growth projections in Texas and areas where it's needed. But even if you just do one gigawatt, you know, that's a thousand tons a day of hydrogen production that has a a good market destination. And you can attract more than a billion dollars a year in that that $3 per kilogram, just in tax credits alone on top of everything else. So that's one that's caught my attention. So American electricity projects have the potential to be pretty interesting at the moment. Interesting. Okay. And I want to come back to Whitecap because I'm just curious. Where are they at right now and where have results come through and what's happening? There's not a lot I can say, but I will say the reason that Whitecap was able to purchase a license is because they had an efficient decision authority. So in many large organizations, once they get to a certain size, there's a committee of paid skeptics who just want to you know, make sure that they can make it to retirement five years from now at the same salary that they're getting now. So if they do nothing controversial, that is likely to happen. And so if you're on a a committee, let's say senior management level or decision-making committee, it's actually at your personal advantage to not try anything new because if it doesn't work, someone's going to blame you for it and you might get an early retirement package. So if there's any uncertainty everybody in these big committee sort of scenarios is allergic to trying it. And I think that's why GM and Ford didn't buy Tesla 15 years ago. It wasn't that there weren't engineers in their group that thought, wow, this is so cool. Imagine the potential. And just to say that again, we have a whole bunch of shareholders who work at all these different oil and gas companies around the world who understand the concept and understand that it's the future. But if it goes to some very 
uncertainty averse decision committee, it's never going to get through probably until there's lots of these at large scale. And by then they're too late anyway. So Whitecap had the advantage of having a very efficient decision making process. So I applaud them for that. And I think that they're one of the few companies of that size that still has a very efficient decision making process for trying things that are logical without, you know, months and months of paralyzing. I want to drive in on that topic there. And it's, it's the way you framed it is so true that you've got a committee of skeptics who are senior individuals in the organization, and they're looking first and foremost to save their ass and second to see if they can move the company forward. And so perhaps there's, there's some organizations that have that less so or are more entrepreneurial, but how and what advice do you have for identifying that and getting around that? Is it relationship building? Is it triangulating in to understand who's who? Like how do you overcome that? Because that seems like it's such a big issue within the oil industry. I think because it is a high risk activity, oil and gas, you're dealing with hazardous goods, transporting them, adding hydrogen to them. There are events that happen that never make the newspaper. You know, I've, I've seen texts of pictures from Northern Alberta, like, like, wow, that's incredible. The potency of this explosion or whatever it is. And there's like not a whisper of it in the media. It's like, how does that happen? Anyway, there is still an enormous amount of industrial accidents that happen. So people are just naturally, as they should be, cautious. So it's like a pipeline company is going to fill up with fairly conservative you know, engineers who want to overbuild as they should and just smoothly operate these pipelines at low risk. And good, good, that needs to happen. A similar mindset happens in oil and gas for, for very similar reasons. I think there's a little bit more on the strategy approach that you can end up being more creative with within oil and gas. But at the end of the day, it needs to be a fairly conservative dominated mindset in terms of like trying new things. People who love safety assurance and this type of stuff, and that's their passion, are usually not the wild entrepreneurs who are like, cool, let's try it. Cool, let's have a portfolio of technologies and we'll try 100 of them and 20 of them are going to pay for the 80 duds. That's not the mindset that they're taking in. They want to look at a chart of wind graphs through time for 20 years and say, okay, what is the construction cost risk on installing some wind farms? And that's a very well-contained, well-constrained question. So a committee of people can look at other wind farms and say, okay, probably this is going to be about like what happened over there. So let's do it. And they do, and it works out. But that's incrementalism. You're not going to have a repurposing of an entire segment in a whole new way until they can see the uncertainty constraint to a zone that they're more comfortable with. So yeah, I guess organizationally, how do you get into that and change it? I don't think that the personality types that gravitate into those roles allows that in most cases. So I'm trying to build my business, not relying on the industry making decisions to jump in other than maybe offtake deals, happy to sell them hydrogen. But if I have to convince them of my technology before I've got, you know, 10 or 50 large facilities, then I'm wasting my time. So yeah, we're just going to do it. You can buy an oil field really cheap from the wrong side of their balance sheet, which has become the future cash flows are worth less than the abandonment liability. Fine, throw us the keys and we'll take it from here. I've got a, a great team. 
No kidding. That's an interesting one. Yeah, like they would throw you the keys. They're like, <laughs> take it. So getting a bit more into that model, that seems like an interesting approach of being able to buy some abandoned assets or what were assets and now repurpose to make them assets. And then when you get into the logistics, you have a facility on site, you're able to extract your primarily hydrogen and the other gases. How do you move them from a well site to wherever they need to be to start getting processed and distributed around the world? Well, again, nearly all large oil and gas infrastructure is connected to the power grid already. So the easiest is to just use the same transformer, burn the hydrogen in a power generator on site and get most of it out through the power line connection. Because we're doing cryogenics, we can actually pre-chill hydrogen down to about minus 180 almost. And to liquefy hydrogen from there energetically is not a big step. You're going another 75 degrees plus a phase change load it into truck and send it to some of these nearby customers, which might be fuel cells in some cases. There's a growing array of fueling stations, hydrogen fueling stations, and their biggest challenge is where are we getting the hydrogen from? So there are some interesting arbitrages that pop up there. And there's also outages with existing steam methane reformers. So we do drive as, you know, there is hydrogen on wheels already. So the virtual pipeline, which is the roads, or possibly rail as it grows. That's something that I think is easier to navigate than trying to figure out how to do broadly into the pipeline system, at least in North America. So, in fact, you're not just not allowed in North America to just pump in hydrogen, unless it's a very clear one way to one customer who says yes. But if you're going into a big main line, the regulators and the customers in Chicago and California and everywhere else where it, where it might end up have to all agree on what's an allowable amount of hydrogen. And I'm skeptical that that's going to happen. Uh, it'll start out with a new backbone. So some pipes can handle pure hydrogen, especially sour gas service. So it'll, it'll start out with heading into known certain pipes that can do it already. And if we have a, a facility here and we're oversupplied with hydrogen, at some point, one of the neighbors who's burning a lot of natural gas might say, hey, it's only a 20 kilometer tie-in. How about I'd sign an offtake deal and I'll take some hydrogen over this way. So it's going to, you know, the network will grow slowly, but just like the transition from, you know, city gas, which was, you know, basically hydrogen rich coal gas from 150 years ago in cities, that moved to methane and there will be a new infrastructure and some new codes and standards for metallurgy and valves and all that stuff that happens in the course of time. Ammonia is the really easy one to move it around today. There's ships and trains and trucks that are already moving lots of ammonia. So the codes and the vessels are all there. So electricity, ammonia, some liquid on wheels. Excuse my ignorance here, but when you extract these gases from the ground and they go through, I would imagine some kind of, I don't know if the word's refinement, but purification process. Would that happen at your facility, at the facility you're licensing? I mean, it can happen all there. It, it strains them, screens them, sanitizes them. Like, what does that look like? It's basically taking advantage of the different boiling points of the different fluids. So actually... <laughs> got a handy page next to me here so if, we, if we're looking and this is at atmospheric pressure but you know methane has a boiling point 
sorry, ammonia of minus 33, methanol is 64, hydrogen minus 252, nitrogen minus 195, carbon monoxide minus 191, oxygen minus 183, methane minus 161, ethane minus 89, propane minus 42, butane minus 1, H2S minus 60, SO2 minus 10. And then there's all the different components of air that have all their different boiling points as well. And so why did you say negative numbers there? You're saying it boils at negative numbers. Yeah, like propane's a great example. If you're camping and it's like minus 40, you're not going to be having any gas coming out of your propane bottle. So at minus 42, you can carry propane in a bucket. But if you warm it up a little bit and get to minus 30, your bucket's going to be empty as it all becomes gas. So is what you're saying that to extract these or separate these different gases out, you need to boil them into negative numbers, effectively freeze them, like freeze boiling? Exactly. So you're chilling them. So you're starting out. So the air separation, the way that that happens is you cool the air to minus 185, and then all your oxygen's a liquid. And the, But the nitrogen is just now, it's a gas. It's a very cold gas, and you can use that for cooling data centers or other things. But this cold oxygen, you have to warm it up to pressurize it. So one of the things you can easily heat exchange with, usefully heat exchange with, as you warm the oxygen, it transfers its coldness. Really, it's the reverse. The heat transfers into the oxygen. But there's all these different things that I listed that have a temperature, like CO2 at roughly 8 bars is somewhere around minus 40. You will liquefy the CO2 if it's under that certain amount of pressure. So that is, you know, one of the big goals and the big topics. So if we can have a vessel where we're circulating a whole bunch of cold oxygen around the outside and finally controlling this pressure vessel to be minus 40, and we've already dropped out some of the sulfur compounds, we have a very tight temperature band, then the produced gases flow into here and the CO2 will become a liquid when it hits minus 40. And then the rest of the gases flow on to the next tank, which is colder. At each one of these temperature levels, you're able to just skim the cream off the top. Yeah. So it's a cascading temperature distillation system. So cool, man. (laughs) I mean, my background's in sales, marketing, and finance, right? And painting colorful stories and helping organizations attract the interest and all of this. But when it comes to engineering and to the physics and to the chemistry that you're explaining here to me, I mean, I just think it's it's very, very interesting. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's also very industrially common. So this is how we separate natural gas today at so-called deep cut facilities is we use temperature. So they use very cold temperatures to get certain types of gases out in midstream gas processing. And then air separation, this has been done for over 100 years where they've been separating out all these different gases, you know, including the noble gases from air. So it's, it's not like I'm inventing a new concept. I'm just integrating existing knowledge into a new way. So we, we sort of patented the whole realm of taking pieces that work. Like if you inject oxygen into an oil field, you will get hydrogen. Part of ours is optimizing for hydrogen instead of enhanced oil recovery. But there's no question we will get hydrogen. How much? I don't know. It depends on the field. You know, there's going to be some variability. It'll be a lot. But then the rest of our separation stuff is like, it's all very well known to like any process engineer that sits with me for half an hour goes, yeah, cool. This all checks out. Every one of them. Not a question. And so 
what got you into Proton? I think I, I looked on your, your LinkedIn and in 2015, you were chairman, you came in as chairman. And then I think 2017, you took over as CEO. What was that all about? How did you come into the organization and, and why did you decide to take the, the CEO role? I was one of the co-inventors and I brought in a bunch of my friends and family to get it all up and running. And the reason I took over as CEO is because I had been mostly out of Calgary on Salt Spring Island. And I got an update one day that, hey, Grant, we're shutting off the utilities tomorrow. So no more electricity or after we bought this oil field, no more electricity and no more natural gas supply. So we had to do some quick, fancy negotiating. And I didn't know that this was a challenge in the background to the extent that there were some things going on that I felt I had to step in and correct in order to defend all my family and friends that had come in on this with me based on their trust in me. So I took over and I've been, you know, <laughs> solving the different challenges and juggling things forward ever since. And it's been great. We've slowly been building our team. We've got about 25 people in the office now, and I think 18 in the field, and plans to expand in Europe and Texas and elsewhere through licensees in some cases and directly in some cases. So I think things are on a, a great trajectory, but until we start mass producing our own equipment, I'll probably stay CEO. Gotcha. And maybe a bit beyond. Yeah. yeah. Now, co-inventor and you raised some money, obviously through family and friends early on, some early investors. What about raising money to date? Have you continued to do that? And what's that experience been like for you? Well, we have some family offices in, but it's never been the family offices who take their committee of hired skeptics and say, okay, you guys, there's kind of two approaches. People who want to improve the world and help leave a better legacy and eradicate air pollution, they can get behind that and accept some uncertainty and say, these guys have made some progress. I'm just going to step in and get them through to the next step. But if your job is to defend wealth that's built up in a company or in a family office, for example, then unless you have basically zero risk, then you are at risk. So you have to highlight everything that might go wrong. Pure oxygen, has that been injected? Yes, but only at like 100 projects around the world. And a few of them didn't work out right. It's like talking about the Hindenburg as an excuse that there should be no hydrogen transition. Well, like I said, things blow up in Fort McMurray regularly and elsewhere. It's just basically, if your job is to raise the alarm of every potential failure mode, which if you're a small, a relatively small business, there are many potential failure modes. You know, we've managed to dodge all of them for seven years. I hope we dodge them all for the next seven and, and beyond. But nothing's a total slam dunk in business, no matter how big you are. And I think that what we're doing is has such a, a huge potential for the pathway to massive, massive rapid growth that somebody who's an entrepreneurial minded person can get behind that and say, cool, let's go for it. Those are the individuals that jump in. It's almost never, possibly never so far that there's like a really risk averse wealth defending committee that said, let's jump in. So unless their mandate is some sort of portfolio where there's an expectation that successes will dominate the losses. Like in 1996, if you bought a sliver of every internet company, you'd be way ahead, you know, but some of them are pets.com 
and some of them are Google and Amazon. So I think that in a big structural change like this move into hydrogen, taking a, a similar approach is probably the way forward. In clean tech in general, the world is decarbonizing aggressively. The governments have all very, very, very clearly mandated in one way or another that this will happen. And they've sustained that message on international treaties for years and things are ratcheting down. And the tax base for most of it has suffered. I think the tax base will have the opposite when companies like mine start to proliferate. It's actually cheaper than the status quo. What I was hearing, and I think you make a good point, is that when you're looking for investment, there's definitely those who are willing to take a risk and those who are, who are looking to protect wealth of themselves or their clients. And yeah, I mean, every investor should know where they fit within that. So when they're looking at a deal, it's, it's they're not going to waste somebody's time. And especially, I mean, to me, you're a venture deal. Venture capital is designed for companies like yourself. And so you're, I think you're going down that path and touching a bit on family offices and, and so on. Yeah. So the point was we have over 300 shareholders. And I'll tell you how we started collecting them. We, we first thought we'd stay sort of friends and family capitalized, small thing and set forward from our own field revenues. But one time, 2019 in August, we sent one of our advisory board members to present at a conference in Spain. And a journalist wrote an article that went very broad before that, we thought, let's stay really hush-hush about this. And then once we've arrived, we'll just announce ourselves. And the next day, we had info at proton.energy on our website. And the next day, we had like 200 inquiries. And about a third of them were, where are you guys listed? Or like investment-related questions. So we ended up putting together a subscription agreement. And when people started asking, how do I buy shares? We do little rounds now and then where people could buy shares. And that helped us grow, but it was it was generally like a, all these oil and gas people who read about us in the Journal of Petroleum Technology or different forums where they're like, wow, this is cool. I want to take some of my risk portfolio and buy a few shares of Proton because if it works like they hope, or even a fraction like they hope, this is going to be a big one. So that's basically how it's so far stayed. We still take lots of calls with committees and have people who do anyway, but... It's really the people who size it up and are, are okay with, you know, they see the destination and the main points. And is it all completely resolved at every aspect? No, we'll learn as we go. There will be some optimizations that we discover that we don't even know we don't know. But I think it's all within the realm of possible. And on a fundamental level, there's this massive fuel deposits that somebody already paid a huge amount to construct. So there's roads, there's power lines, there's pipelines, there's people and wells. And we can repurpose a bunch of this existing massive expense and infrastructure to our method. So the fuel deposits, no one questions that there's a lot of oil left down there. No one questions that when you inject a bunch of oxygen, you trigger a bunch of reactions, some of which liberate hydrogen. And no one questions that if you take a mixture of gases, you can separate hydrogen out from them. So it's like, okay, well, what am I missing here? Isn't this like simple as wheels on suitcases? You know, this should have been done 80 years ago. Why isn't everybody doing this? And sometimes that is the people's reasons for skepticism. They're like, well, if it's so great, why isn't it already common? Just like, you know, electric cars or just like wheels on suitcases in the 1970s, like didn't exist. Now they're pretty common, ubiquitous. Fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes it takes people 
our industry a lot to catch up. So it's a really interesting approach you're taking here. And I, and I think that, you know, validated by the, the relationship with Whitecap that you have and the potential of what's there, I think it's like really exciting. So I applaud you for that and applaud you for pushing forward in, in an otherwise very difficult space to make progress. So with that, I'm just looking at time. We're, we're just pushing up to an hour. Any final thoughts for the audience? And I, and I want to put this broadly in the sense of you've had an interesting both professional and entrepreneurial career. And I'm sure there's some lessons there that are valuable if you were to share them. Anything come to mind? The most astonishing broad one to me is people don't like change. It's amazing how much people hate to change anything in their lives, in their realms, in what they buy, what they eat, what they do. People just don't like change. Even if it's killing millions of us per year from air pollution, and we can work pretty quickly to turn all that off, nobody cares. You know, Imagine if there's a terrorist organization that was killing a few people a minute. I think we'd start trillion-dollar wars to stop that. Whereas we're killing millions of people per year from air pollution, and nobody cares because fixing it would involve change. And we can fix that for a lot less than people imagine. And I'm looking for like-minded partners who want to help me eradicate air pollution, drop the cost of energy, and expand the supply of energy so we can trigger the next renaissance for humanity. That's amazing. Good for you. Thanks so much, Grant. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.